and ramen. Who's hungry? Eat like Welcome to Fan Ramen, the official podcast of Black Ramen. We're a band who writes epic music for film and games. And we're here to read your fan fiction. I'm Lindy. Konnichiwa. I'm Ralph. What's up? Behind the board is our awesome sound guy and sushi chef, the, the wizard, Kevin. Another brother is an avatar, the last airbender fic from Avocado Love. Oh, I could love me some avocado right now. You can find Avocado Love on an archive of our own.org or on fanfiction.net. So be sure to give this story a follow. It was a mission of revenge. There weren't supposed to be any survivors, but Chief Hakoda could not bring himself to kill the Fire Nation boy. Against his better judgment, he brought him home. Azuko joins the Water Tribe story. Chief Hakoda hated the cleanup after any battle, even if it was one that ended in victory. He stood on the high prow of the newly captured Fire Nation ship, silent, and watching his men work in twos and threes, stripping the ship for much-needed supplies and throwing the bodies of their enemies overboard. Dark red pools of blood splattered the deck and drained under the metal rivets. Most of it, Hakoda noted with a grim satisfaction, was the enemies. It hadn't been luck that resulted in not a single mortality for his tribe, but careful strategy. The Fire Nation ship had been sighted mid-morning and they had stalked it silently. They struck at night with the moon high in the sky, blinking her baleful light on the fighting, the screaming. The enemy ship had only three benders among her ranks, and without the energy of their elemental sun spirit, they had been at a near disadvantage. And now they were dead, and Chief Hakoda had a Fire Nation ship at his command. A stiff breeze whipped his brown hair, and the newly rising sun cast long shadows across his face, making the normal handsome man look haggard, old, before his time. As soon as his men were done scavenging, they would blast a hole in the bottom of this unnatural abomination. Hakoda trusted his own ships, which were secured with natural wood, resin, and tar. This metal blasphemy deserved to be at the bottom of the ocean. In water this deep, the Fire Nation would never be able to salvage it. It wouldn't be a great loss, but it would be a loss, and any wound to those evil, murdering savages was a boon to him and his men's hearts. This mission was one of revenge. It had been three months since the surprise attack on the Southern Water Tribe. It happened while most of the men were out on their annual seal hunt. The losses were staggering. Many had lost their entire families. While his own two young children were safe, Hakoda had lost his wife, Kaya, and a part of his heart had died along with her. Hakoda! Hearing his name, the young chief turned and saw Yurik, waving at him from portside. There's something here you need to see. Raising his hand to signal that he had heard, Hakoda took the stairs to the lower deck two at a time. A group of men were gathered around what almost looked like an emergency metal raft. It had been strapped to the side of the ship, 
and its dust coverlet had been tugged half off by the search party. Whatever drew his warrior's interest had been underneath. Hakoda's second in command, Bato, turned at his arrival. Tatum found him while searching out for supplies. Then he moved aside, and quite suddenly, Hakoda found himself looking at a boy. There was no doubt that the child was Fire Nation, what with his raven black hair and pale skin. He lay curled up, asleep, with his knees tucked to his chest, completely unaware of the group gathered around him. And the reason for that was quite clear. Dark stains of blood, black with age, spilled down the front of his robe like a young child who had tipped water on himself. It looked like someone had slashed his neck from ear to collar. There was more. The visible upper left corner of his face surrounding the eye and left corner of his face was black, blistered, and burnt. Both wounds seemed infected, and Hakoda could smell the stink of the rot from several feet away. What kind of monsters? Yurik whispered, but couldn't finish. Bato touched Hakoda's shoulder. I know you said that there were to be no survivors. It was a simple statement, and for a moment, Hakoda didn't know what his first mate was alluding to until he noticed that the boy's chest was rising and falling in small, shallow movements. Despite the grievous wounds, he was alive. All the men were looking to him now, and Hakoda felt the weight of responsibility on his shoulders. Bato was right. There were to be no Fire Nation survivors. The invading fire soldiers had specifically targeted children on their last raid. Bato's two daughters were part of the casualties, murdered as they slept in their beds. This was war. Hakoda knew he could not ask any of his men to do this. This would be his burden and his alone. With a nod, he reached to his long knife on his hip, unsheathing it. Go, he said simply. The warriors did not argue. None wanted to witness this. Hakoda shut his eyes and waited until their footsteps faded away. Then, gripping his knife in a sweaty hand, he brought it to bear. The boy was clearly fevered with his wounds. This would probably be an act of mercy. The kindest thing was to make it as quick as possible so that he never woke up. But as he turned the child over to get a clear, precise target at the back of the neck, he caught a glimpse of the other side of his face, whole, unblemished, and young, younger than he thought. Why, the child had to be about the same age as his own Sokka. He hesitated. An image of his firstborn flashed in his mind, Sokka's laughing face, his sly intelligence, so sharp for a nine-year-old. He was a brave boy. He had begged to go along with them to help take revenge for his mother's death. Both Sokka and his younger sister Katara expected Hakoda and his men to fight for their mothers and the others. How could he go back to them, look them in the eye, and tell them that the face of one of the enemy had been a child? Hakoda's hand dropped. He lost his nerve. His men wouldn't like this, but he was the chief. And besides, it was a great possibility the child would be dead before morning. 
Carefully wrapping the boy in the raft coverlet, he hefted him in his arms. The smell from the rotten wounds was nauseating. The Fire Nation boy slept on, oblivious. Later that evening, Hakoda chose to take dinner alone in his private cabin, rather than fest victory with his men. He wanted to be with his own thoughts and plan what to do next. Counting this last victory, he and his men had taken out four Fire Nation battleships. There were dozens more out there, sailing what should have been the southern water tribes. His warriors were willing to challenge them all, but reports from below deck had their supplies running low. Even with salvaging, there were things that just couldn't be replaced. His men were getting fatigued, and soon it would be time to return home. Hakoda's wishes for privacy were, of course, ignored by his second-in-command. Bato burst in the cabin without preamble, stinking of bad Fire Nation wine. Hakoda glanced up from his navigation maps and gestured for him to shut the door. Bato was the only one who could get away with interrupting him like this, but he didn't want the other men to see it. Healer Kuthrok's finally finished on the boy said Bato in his normally direct way as he came around to the other side of the desk. He'll have to use most of our bandaging and probably all of our rose thorn packing to stay the infection. He says, though, that he might survive, but he'll probably lose that eye. Hakoda grunted acknowledgement and went back to his maps. He knew Bato almost better than he knew himself. The man had another point to make and Hakoda would be quiet and let him make it. He wasn't in the mood for games. Sure enough, after a brief pause, Bato spoke again. The men are relieved we don't have a child's blood on our hands, but what if he survives, Hakoda? You know what he will become. No one will tolerate a Fire Nation man. Hakoda cut him off with a wave of his hand. I doubt that boy is even 11 years old. He's hardly a man. He will be someday. What do you plan to do? Take him ice dodging when he's older? The chief looked up and saw the steel passion in his friend's blue eyes. If he survives, he replied. The boy will be taken on our next voyage and dropped off at the nearest Earth Kingdom port. Some of the southern islands are still neutral in the war. He had no intention of letting the seed of an enemy take root in his tribe. Bato nodded, satisfied, and finally bent his attention on the navigational map. Back home then? Hakoda marked his stylus against the paper, drawing out their route. Not right away. I want to patrol the area for at least a week before we pull into port. No use going back, only to be attacked again. I want our waters clear, if all goes well. He made another small notation and then leaned back, overlooking his work with satisfaction. We should be seeing our shores within the month. I'll pass the word along. It was more of a question than anything else, and Hakoda nodded, rolling up the map and passing it along to his first mate. If you please, and tell me about any changes with the boy. It's time for a little dessert. We're going to drizzle some drabble on ya. If you don't know what drabble is, it's mochi-sized stories. Today, we've got a drabble for all you space cowboys. 
Is it Cowboy Bebop? I love the music from that show. This one is from Sylphanis, which is spelled S-I-L-P-H-A-N-I-S. Their work is hosted on both an archiveofourown.org and fanfiction.net and definitely worth a follow. We'll also link their work in the comments, so if you're watching this podcast on YouTube, check it out. His cigarette was dead. It made a valiant effort against the downpour, but to no avail. He let it fall, following it with his eyes as it landed, rolling behind him and bumping into a pair of familiar shoes. Rain's a bitch, huh? Faye said. You're telling me. We couldn't have left it on Earth. Really, it's just some water. I think it follows us. Even if we tried to escape it, we'd find that we needed to be, well, us. We're not talking about the rain anymore, are we? We are always talking about the rain. Shut up, Spiegel. I have a bonus after-dinner mint for you. The song we featured during that drabble was written by none other than our one and only Lindy. Yeah, it's a music box sound right now, but I originally wrote that on guitar. So check out our YouTube channel to watch me play it on guitar. Just look for Fan Ramen Podcast on YouTube. It's an after-dinner mint for the ears. Ah, my hearing is so fresh now. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for the wonderful fan fiction. Send your submissions and or requests to fanramenpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. This is Lindy. This is Ralph. And And we'll we'll see see you the next next time time you're hungry. This podcast produced by Lindy Day and Ralph Avalon. Sound design and engineering by Kevin Villagestone. Music by Black Ramen. Recorded and mixed in the Black Ramen Studios.